You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. We do have sermon notes available in the back and then also our slide notes available in our Google Drive folder if you need those to follow along. John chapter 3. Last week we started looking at this chapter and saw specifically uh, the introduction to the conversation that takes place with uh, Nicodemus, Nicodemus being a Jewish leader who comes to Jesus by night, uh, comes and states some things up front that he believes, and some of his colleagues believe that Jesus is definitely from God, that the things that he do he is doing could not be done without God being the one who sent him. And then Jesus begins to answer questions as though Nicodemus has asked something, which we said last week he hadn't really even had the chance to ask anything. And Jesus just kind of jumps straight to it and says, let me, let me tell you what you're actually here uh, wondering and wanting to know. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these, thing, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is talking about what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God, what type of credentials are needed for that, and he's very clear that it requires being born again, that Nicodemus's credentials of being a religious leader, which would have meant that he would have been thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament, would have had a great knowledge of God's word, would have been living as best he could according to the standards of the Old Testament, and Jesus basically says, hey, that stuff's not getting you into heaven, that your good works aren't going to be sufficient enough to get you there, that you have to be born again. And Nicodemus kind of panics and goes into confused mode here and doesn't know really what's happening and doesn't really understand some of the spiritual things that Jesus is talking about. And ultimately what we find here is a discussion about regeneration or what it means to be born again. And we described it last week where it's the process of the Holy Spirit awakening, awakening us to spiritual things enabling us to see our sin and our need for confession, and then it's coupled with new desires to follow Christ. And so ultimately the new birth is the Holy Spirit coming inside of us and radically changing our desires to where we see that we're sinful, we see that we need a Savior, and he replaces sinful desires now and starts to weed those out, giving us desires to follow Jesus. Right? And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, this is necessary for salvation. And so application-wise, last week we talked about spend some time rejoicing over your salvation this week because it's a, it's a work of God. It's not something that you did. It's not something that you earned. It's something that God did in your life. And so he certainly should be praised for that. We also talked about being faithful to communicate the gospel to those who claim Christ but don't reflect genuine belief. Jesus says the new birth is like wind. It blows where it wants You don't always see it, you don't always understand it, but it certainly leaves effects behind it. That there are changes, there are differences after the new birth. And so we said that there may be people who claim to to be a follower of Christ, much like Nicodemus would have said, hey, I'm a believer, um, 
but there wasn't the, the change yet. There hadn't been a, an effect in his life. And so I told you last week, let's be faithful to teach Jesus, even to those who claim Jesus. If there's not a change in their life, they may still need the gospel. And then last week, we also said, don't give up on praying for people who need Jesus. Uh, that There may be long periods of time where you've prayed for an individual and you're, you're at the point where you're ready to give up and say, I don't, I don't know that this person's ever going to get saved. To not lose hope that it certainly is a supernatural act and the wind may still blow in that person's life. And so we keep praying for that, realizing that if God wants to do the work, he will do the work. That brings us now to uh, some of Nicodemus' response, and then Jesus continues to uh, share some theological truth with Nicodemus. It says in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Our summary sentence for today, believing the truth and life-changing power of God's word, we can rejoice over a God who extends salvation based on his self-sacrificing love rather than our good works giving us reason to seek exposure in the light versus cowering in the darkness. Believing the truth and the life-changing power of God's word, we can rejoice over a God who extends salvation based on his self-sacrificing love rather than our good works, giving us reason to seek exposure in the light versus cowering in the darkness. For our kids, God loves us and saves us based on our belief in him rather than our good works. There's two elements here to what Jesus tells to Nicodemus. There's an element of truth that he has been teaching to Nicodemus and others, a truth that Nicodemus has yet to fully embrace. And there's this also this idea of things that have been seen, testimonies that have been shared, changes to people's lives that Nicodemus has failed to recognize as well. That's the thing about the gospel is that we don't simply stand here and proclaim to you something without evidence of its truthfulness. Not evidence scientifically, but evidence of, of experience where we can show individuals who have been radically changed by the gospel. People who were one way not too long ago and have been radically changed by the gospel, the Holy Spirit's power in their life, and they have been completely transformed, completely put on a new track for life. So we believe this type of gospel, and we can rejoice over a God who extends salvation based on his love and not our performance. It's, it's based on his love and not our good works. And because we worship a God like that, because we serve a God like that, because we have a God who loves us, 
when we were yet sinners, it gives us all the reason in the world to come out of the darkness. It gives us all the reason in the world to walk out into the light, knowing that we're not going to be rejected, knowing that there's not some secret hidden sin that God didn't know about when he wanted to save us, and now he's going to change his mind. We can prance forth into the light and say, here it all is. Here's everything. Let me get it all out onto the table. And God says, I already knew it was there, right? And so we don't have to cower in the darkness. We can be exposed in the light and experience the radical change that comes from the gospel. In this passage, there's a reference to um, an Old Testament story. We see it in um, verse 14. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This story comes from Numbers chapter 21. Hopefully you had a chance to look at it this week, maybe in your own personal time. But this is the account of the, the serpents in the wilderness. And you'll remember that the Israelites had, had grown discontent with how God was working and providing for them. And so they, they rebelled in, in frustration. They rebelled with their grumbling and their complaining. And so God reacts to this by sending these fiery serpents. And it's very possible that the fiery serpents uh, when, the, when they were biting the children of Israel, the result was them to go into great fever. Uh, their, their, their bodies were heating up, and so that may be the illusion there of fiery serpents, that the reaction to the snake bites uh, was this great fever, and they were dying of this. And they come to, to Moses in response to this uh, plague, and they, and they cry out to God, and they want forgiveness for their sins, and they want, they want healing from these bites. And God instructs Moses, he says, I want you to construct a bronze serpent. I want you to put it in the middle of the camp. And I want you to instruct the people that if they want salvation, if they want to be changed, if they want to be healed, they simply have to look to this snake. And Jesus compares that to what will happen when he, too, is lifted up on the cross, that the way we can be healed from the, the bite of sin in our own life is to turn to him and to look to the cross. It's interesting to note you don't really hear much after that story about the bronze serpent until you fast forward to 2 Kings chapter 18 and you find out that the children of Israel had, Israel had been worshiping it for years. They had, they had even misconstrued the purpose of this snake, that it was a one-time uh, channel of healing for them, but that it ultimately wasn't the snake that had healed them, right? It was God that had healed them, and, and one of the kings in 2 Kings has to actually destroy it to, to weed it out of the life of the, of the Israelites. And so um, they even perverted something that God had given to them and had uh, elevated it too highly. We also see Jesus here in this passage uh, relying upon authority that's rooted in his heavenly origins. And I say origins not because he began in heaven, but simply because he comes from heaven to earth. And so he relies upon this heavenly authority in his conversation with Nicodemus, showing that he has the right to speak to these things. I think as you read through this passage, you can't help but see that Nicodemus seems to remain lost throughout this passage. Jesus, time and again, talks about him not understanding some things and even highlighting the fact that he doesn't believe what he does understand. It's not that you have Nicodemus here just mired in confusion and, and doesn't know what to do. Look what Jesus says. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Implying that... You may be confused, but you have no reason to be confused. You should certainly understand. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So here, Jesus rebu rebukes Nicodemus and even puts burden of responsibility back on Nicodemus. 
and says, you have not done anything with what you do know. You have not responded to what you do understand. He says, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, not if I've told you earthly things and you don't understand, it's if you, if you don't believe these things, how can you believe in the heavenly things that I want to tell you about as well? So there's definitely a rebuke towards Nicodemus. But if you read John chapter 7, verse 50, and John 19, verse 39, both those passages seem to indicate that Nicodemus does experience the new birth later in life. In 750, he is defending Jesus before those who would falsely accuse Jesus. And then in 19, he is participating in the burial of Jesus's body, something that he would not have been probably prone to do if he was still grouping himself with the Pharisees who had worked so hard to crucify him. So it does seem that Nicodemus, while fails to believe in this situation, does put the pieces together and experiences that change down the road. Let's look at a few things that we have here with our time remaining today. Number one, believe the things that you are capable of now. Believe the things that you are capable of now. For our kids, believe what you understand. I say that to, 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 to share with you that as you grow and mature as a Christian, there are going to be passages of Scripture that are very difficult to understand. There are going to be doctrines and theologies that confuse you, that you have a hard time wrapping your mind around. I remember teaching at Mount Gilead. Um, we were doing a series on, on the unchangeableness of God. And, and I remember coming to passage after passage that would talk about how God doesn't change his mind and then passages that seemed to show that he was changing his mind. And, and I was so confused and overwhelmed by some of those things. There's going to be times in your life where you are studying passages of Scripture or where God's doing things in your life that you just don't understand. But what Nicodemus is held accountable for is what he does understand. The fact that there is elements of of the gospel. There were elements of what Jesus had been teaching that he should have understood, that he did see, and he was not believing in those things. And so we have a responsibility to believe the things that we are capable of believing right now. Number one here, believe the truths that you are mature enough to handle. There are truths that every one of us is capable of believing, and we will be held accountable for those things. Nicodemus should have understood understood more than he was grasping, and Jesus highlights this fact. Tells him that as a teacher of Israel, he should be getting these things. And so we as believers here this morning, we have a responsibility to believe the things that we can understand. We may not be able to understand everything, and, and, and I certainly believe that, that our kids that are sitting in here with us, that there are things that will be shared today that they can believe in. And I've had you as parents reach out to me and share with me some of the things that they are hanging on to. They're not hanging on to everything in here, and I don't expect them to hang on to everything in here. I don't expect some of our adults to hang on to everything in here. But I do expect you to grasp and to believe the things that you are capable of understanding. And that's true for our youngest kids that are with us today. That's why we even give them the kids' notes, because I do believe there are things that they can believe and know this morning. And Nicodemus is held accountable for that. We need to believe the truths that we're mature enough to handle. Number two, we need to find validation for our beliefs through what we experience. We need to find validation for our beliefs through what we experience. And Jesus highlights this for Nicodemus as well. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to you what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
So Jesus says, there's an aspect where I've told you truth, I've, I've preached to you truth, and then other times where I've shared with you the radical changes that come from that truth, things that we have seen. We've told you things, and we have shown you things, and you do not believe, Nicodemus. It's a reminder to us that, that there are times in our life where we may be wrestling with doubt as to, man, is this whole thing true or not? Is Jesus real? Is, is the things that I've been raised to believe accurate? And Jesus would remind us in those times to look around and say, do you see the effects of it? Do you see the effects of the wind? Because Nicodemus is denying the effects. He's like the guy we said last week who, who is in the presence of the, the path of a tornado that has just gone through and would try to deny that the tornado was there. It sure looks like a tornado was here. The houses are wrecked. The, the toys are strewn all over the place. Trees are down. Power is out. So Jesus is saying, look, if, you, if you're having trouble believing the things that I'm saying, look at the things that you have seen. It verifies the things that I'm telling you. Be encouraged. The gospel is true. And you can see it by the changed lives that you witness. Nicodemus was not responding to the evidence. He can't grasp the reason behind it then. So Jesus is basically saying, you're not going to understand the new birth. You're not going to be able to grasp the things that I'm telling you because you're not even willing to admit that new birth has happened to some of these people. You're you're missing the effects. I want to read to you um, one commentator's account of this, one story. Um, It's shared by a a guy named Harry A. Ironside, who was a a Bible teacher and, and commentator and evangelist. And it says, Early in Harry's ministry, the great evangelist and Bible teacher was living in the area of San Francisco Bay, working with a group of believers called Brethren. One Sunday, as he was walking through the city, he came upon a group of Salvation Army workers who were holding a meeting on the corner of Market and Grant Avenues. There were probably 60 of them. When they recognized Dr. Ironside, they immediately asked him if he would, like to, if he would not like to give his testimony. He did, giving a word about how God had saved him through faith in the bodily death and literal resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he was speaking, Ironside noticed that on the edge of the crowd, there was a well-dressed man who had taken a card from his pocket and had written something on it. As Ironside finished his talk, this man came forward, lifted his hat, and very politely handed him the card. On one side was his name, which Ironside immediately recognized. The man was one of the early socialists who had made a name for himself lecturing, not only for socialism, but also against Christianity. As Ironside turned the card over, he read, Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question, agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. I will pay all expenses. Ironside reread the card aloud and then replied somewhat like this, I'm very much interested in this challenge. Frankly, I am already scheduled for another meeting next Lord's Day afternoon at 3 o'clock, but I think it will be possible for me to get through it, uh, with that time, with, get through it in time to reach the Academy of Science Hall by 4 Or if necessary, I could arrange to have another speaker substitute for me at the meeting already advertised. Therefore, I will be glad to agree to this debate on the following conditions. Namely, that in order to prove that Mr. Mr. Blank has something worth fighting for and worth debating about, he will promise to bring with him to the hall next Sunday two people whose qualifications I will give in a moment as proof that agnosticism is of real value in changing human lives and building true character. First, he must promise to bring with him one man who was for years what we commonly call a down-and-outer. 
I am not particular as to the exact nature of the sins that has wrecked his life and made him an outcast from society, whether he's a drunkard or a criminal of some kind or a victim of his sensual appetite, but a man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but who on some occasion entered one of Mr. Blank's meetings and heard his glorification of agnosticism and his denunciations of the Bible and Christianity, and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address were so deeply stirred that he went away from that meeting saying, Henceforth I too am an agnostic. And as a result of imbibing that particular philosophy, found that a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved he now hates, and righteousness and goodness are now the ideals of his life. He is entirely a new man, a credit to himself, and an asset to society, all because he is an agnostic. Secondly, I would like Mr. Blank to promise to bring with him one woman, and I think he may have more difficulty in finding the woman than the man, who was once a poor, wrecked, characterless outcast, the slave of evil passions and the victim of man's corrupt living, perhaps one who had lived for years in some evil resort, utterly lost, ruined, and wretched because of her life of sin. But this woman also entered a hall where Mr. Blank was loudly proclaiming his agnosticism and ridiculing the message of the Holy Scriptures. As she listened, as she listened, hope was born in her heart. And she said, this is just what I need to deliver me from the slavery of sin. She followed the teaching and became an intelligent agnostic or infidel. As a result, her whole being revolted against the degradation of the life she had been living. She fled from the den of iniquity where she had been held captive so long. And today, rehabilitated, she has won her way back to an honored position in society and is living a clean, virtuous, happy life, all because she's an agnostic. Now, he said, addressing the gentleman who had presented him with this card in the challenge, if you will promise to bring these two people with you as examples of what agnosticism can do, I will promise to meet you at the hall at the hour appointed next Sunday. And I will bring with me, at the very least, 100 men and women who for years lived in just such sinful degradation as I have tried to depict, but who have been gloriously saved through believing the gospel which you ridicule. I will have these men and women with me on, plat on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ and as present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. Ironside then turned to the Salvation Army captain, a woman, and said, Captain, have you any who could come with me to such a meeting? She exclaimed with enthusiasm. We can give you 40, at least, just from this one corps, and we will give you a brass band to lead the procession. Fine. Now, Mr. Blank, I will have no difficulty in picking up 60 others from the various missions, gospel halls, and evangelical churches of the city. And if you will promise faithfully to bring two such exhibits as I have described, I will come marching in at the head of the, such a procession with the band playing Onward Christian Soldiers, and I will be ready for the debate. Apparently, the man who had made the challenge must have had some sense of humor, for he smiled wryly and waved his hand in a deprecating kind of way as if to say, never mind, and then edged out of the crowd while the bystanders clapped for Dr. Ironside and the others. What's his point? He says, I'm not going to debate Christianity with you. I'm not going to debate some other philosophical system unless you have proof that it works, unless you have proof that it changes people's lives. He says, why would I, why would I allow you to call into question my Christianity when you have no verification, no basis that, th that your system makes life better for anyone? He says, I've got countless people, countless people who can testify to what the new birth looks like, to the experience, to the change that the new birth brings into the life of an individual. Jesus says, Nicodemus, wake up and see the testimonies around you. 
Number two, remember that salvation is not works-based. It's not works-based. We see this very clearly in this passage. He says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For our kids, remember, good works don't get us to heaven. Number one here, sin's solution is rooted in God's provision, not man's performance. It's rooted in God's provision, not man's performance. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Imagine if you're in the camp of Israel and you're being bitten by these snakes. I doubt the very first thing they did was come to Moses and say, hey, we're sorry, can you get God to forgive us and make a way for us to escape this? I think that was the last resort. I think they tried everything. I think they tried to come up with creams. I think they tried to come up with potions. I think they tried to come up with anything and everything to fix it. They had their best scientists, their best thinkers. How can we remedy this problem? Have you ever seen this snake before? Have we ever tried to treat a bite like this before? What are some things that have worked when other people have had fevers? I think they probably tried everything and lost countless people in the process of not repenting like they should have. Then word breaks. Here's what we have to do to be healed. Here's what we have to do to be fixed. We have to look at a golden snake. We have to, we have to turn and look towards a golden snake. I think it would, have, it would have been hard because it would have negated all of the things that they had already tried to fix this situation. It would have probably seemed too simple even to do so. What's interesting here is that, as you think about it, even the most miserable complainer was saved the same way as the others. They all, they all were saved the same way, right? Like it wasn't, okay, the guys who started the complaining those guys have to do a little bit more than the guy who was just kind of a, a, a small participator in the complaining. No, like what it infected them was equal across the board. Everybody was being bit by snakes. Not the guy who started the complaining, not the guy who helped spread the complaining, but everybody in the camp was being bitten by these snakes because they had all participated in some form or fashion. They were all guilty. And the only thing that could fix them was the exact same thing for everybody. We, we probably don't verbalize this, but it, but it seems almost unfair that, that the worst criminal that we could think of, and, and, and Rob works with some, some situations that are dark, evil, that those people get saved the same way as somebody who grew up in church, who has always tried to be a good individual, who, who doesn't have the deep, dark past, that you sit down with both of them and you say, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. You have, to, you have to turn your heart to Jesus and you can be saved. Because there's a lot inside of us that would say, but not this guy. Like, like this guy has to do something else, right? Like, like he's, too, he's too evil, he's too bad. He shouldn't be able to just turn to Jesus. That should be for the good people, the people that are almost there. And that's just not how the gospel works, right? Like all these complainers turn to the snake to be saved, to be healed. Number two, faith is the channel to receive healing from sin. 
The difference between eternal death and eternal life is believing on Jesus. Hell is described in the Bible as a place where punishment for sinning against infinitely holy God is infinitely experienced by sinners. The gospel is very simple, and John 3.16 is a, is a passage that's known around the world. It's usually one of the first verses to be translated into a new language. Why? Because it's the gospel in summary format. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The idea here is that we believe in Jesus. What do we have to believe? Well, there's a couple of things that I think echo from these pages here. One, that I am less perfect than God, and that creates a need for judgment. And we can all admit that, right? Too often times, though, we compare ourselves to other, and we say, I'm better than that individual, so some of these things must not apply to me. But the, the truth of the gospel is that we are all less perfect than God, No matter how good we are, we're all less perfect than God, and that demands punishment. That demands judgment. We have to believe that, that we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Secondly, that he loves me enough to send a remedy, but it's something he does for me and not something I do myself. There was nothing human-generated by turning to that snake that healed them. That was a supernatural work of Christ. That was a supernatural work of God who reached into those sick bodies and took the poison out and healed them in the Old Testament. And they could have rejoiced over it, and as they talked about it, would have had to recognize, we didn't fix ourselves. Like, all I did was look at this snake, and then something happened there that that healed me, right? So, believing that we're less perfect than God and that we deserve judgment for that, Believing that God has sent us a remedy, but it's something that he does for me, not something that we do ourselves. That our good works pale in comparison to what Christ has come to do for us. That he has earned perfection. He has served as the sacrifice for our sins. He has satisfied God's wrath. Number three, be thankful for a God of justice and love. Be thankful for a God of justice and love. For our kids, God loves us, but he must punish sin. He loves us, but he must punish sin. Be thankful for a God of justice and love. Number one, man's default status is condemnation. We're not born into this world good. We're not born into this world neutral. We don't become bad when we start making bad decisions. We are born sinful, and we are thus born condemned already is what the passage tells us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. We begin our lives in a state of condemnation. What does it mean to be condemned? It means that you're guilty of an act that makes you liable for punishment. We are born sinful. We are born condemned. And the Bible tells us we're already condemned before he's even presented to us. We don't, we don't have to wait till the end of our life to find out if we're condemned. It's true right now. Jesus doesn't come to condemn us. We're already condemned. He comes to save us. A couple of passages that you could write down to see this. Luke chapter 5, verse 31 through 32. Luke 5, 31 through 32. Luke 19, 10. Those are two passages outside of John, Luke 5, 31 through 32, and Luke 19, 10, and then also John 12, 47. 
all three of these passages talk about how Jesus came not to save the, the, the healthy, but to save the sick. That, that he came to heal those who needed healing. He's the physician for those who recognize their need for the doctor. And we remain in a state of condemnation if we fail to believe in him. This idea of condemnation and perishing, it's based on our evil deeds. He goes on to tell us in this passage, it's based on hating the light and it's based on not believing in Jesus. So we're already condemned and we just keep ourselves in this state of condemnation as we do evil deeds, as we hate the light, as we reject Jesus. We just further confirm our condemnation. But God's a God of love. But what the cross communicates to us is that God's desire is not to sacrifice his righteousness when loving us. He doesn't sacrifice his righteousness. He doesn't set aside his demand for holiness. He doesn't set aside his requirement for righteousness in the name of love, right? Instead, he says, you know what? As a God of love and as a God of justice, I will punish sin. I'll send my son to absorb it on behalf of those who turn to me. And that's the truth of the gospel, that we can be saved, not because God's love wins out over his justice, but because they work together to bring us to him. God punishes sin appropriately through his son Jesus on the cross. And his motivation for sending his son is out of love for the world. Number two, God's love brings salvation and life. God's love brings salvation and life. God is not a ruthless old man who only relates to us through his anger. Right? So some people believe that God is all love, and couldn't ever possibly punish sin. And then others hate God because all they see is a God of anger and they don't see how in the world that's worth following. That, 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 he's, a, that he's an old man who just overreacts to petty little things that we do. But instead we see a God of both. A God who is just and holy, but a God who is motivated by love. John 3.16 gives us the reason for verses 14 and 15. His love is the motivation and purpose behind the cross. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Why? Why, why? why would God do it this way? Because he loved the world. That's why he gave his only son. It was motivated out of love. And he loves the world. He loves everybody in the world from a non-discriminatory standpoint. right? And so the remarkable aspect of his love for the world is not that he loves the world that is so big, but that he loves a world that is so bad. That's really where the glories of the gospel is contained. Yes, he loves people of, of all backgrounds and all race, uh, races and, and all skin colors. Absolutely. He's very diverse in his love. He's very specific in his application of it for salvation. He's not diverse in his ways of coming to him. And many would like for us to believe that, that uh, he loves the world and therefore honors people's best devotions to him based on how they were raised and the systems of religion that they came up in. He's absolutely diverse in his love. He loves the world. He loves people from, from all tribes, nations, and tongues. We've seen that in the book of Revelation, right? He's very specific, though, in his application of salvation, not diverse in his methods. But the remarkable aspect of his love is that he loves a world that's not so big but is so bad, 
God's love is chiefly displayed through the death of Christ. Listen to this. The cross is the greatest demonstration of love for you that has been shown and ever could be shown. But isn't it crazy that sometimes we're not content with that? That we could actually step back and question sometimes if God loves us or not. It's almost as though we believe God outdid himself at the very beginning with the cross, and and now he has to show himself up for us to really believe that he loves us. We operate that way sometimes, right? Um, Thankfully, um, in in the ways that we've celebrated our anniversary in the past, Lauren hasn't held me to outdoing myself every time. I remember our first anniversary, we went to Callaway Gardens, I think, and and stayed in a nice resort and spent the day in the gardens, and it was just a, a great day of celebration of our wedding. It was the second year, I think, that we ate at Buffalo's and Griffin um, because we were so busy at that time of our life, and it kind of snuck up on us. And so uh, I have a bad uh, habit of thinking restaurants are nicer than they, they are sometimes. I was sharing with some people recently, we spent Valentine's Day one year at the steak restaurant in Sonoy next to the gas station because in my mind I was thinking this is like going to be a nice steak restaurant and we went in there and it was like a karaoke bar with like really underwhelming steak but I remember telling Lauren I was like we'll go to Buffalo's tonight we'll we'll do this right we will celebrate our anniversary and just kind of getting in there thinking like this isn't even the best restaurant in Griffin you know um and thankfully Lauren didn't judge me on our on whether I loved her or not based on Callaway the year before Buffalo's the next year But sometimes I think we interact with God that way. It's almost like, you know, you got to outdo yourself. You got to keep showing. And and what the Bible tells us is that it doesn't get any better than the cross. And if that's all he ever did for us, that ought to be overwhelmingly sufficient for us to believe that he is all in for us. That he loves us, that he sacrificed his son for us, that that's the greatest demonstration of love that we could ever have. And too often times we, we start to question God's love for us because of circumstances that we're going through. And we wonder, man, does God really love me? When will, when will God show me his love? And what the Bible would say is that he's already overwhelmingly shown it. That, that, the, that the giving of his son is the greatest demonstration of love that he could ever give to us. And we ought to be content, not just content, but overwhelmed by that act of love. We don't just hear or think that God loves us. He has demonstrated it in a real tangible way. The proof of his love is that he acted and showed it. And we don't deserve his love. It's unmerited and the results, uh, it results in us loving him second. 1 John 4.10 and 1 John 4.19 talk about the fact that the only way we can even love God is because he loved us first. And once we escape this condemnation, and Jesus tells us, if we will believe in Jesus, we can escape perishing. We can escape condemnation. The Bible tells us that there is no longer a threat of accusation when we go into this new state. So we're born into a state of condemnation, but when we believe in Jesus, we escape that condemnation never to be accused again. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 says, Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There is no more accusation for those of us that believe in Jesus. Number four, seek to live in the light rather than darkness. Seek to live in the light rather than darkness. 
for our kids, we must seek forgiveness for our sins. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Number one, saving faith leads to decreasing desires to sin. Saving faith leads to decreasing desires to sin. What Jesus tells us here is that the lost choose to remain in darkness. Why? Because they love their sin. They love the darkness rather than the light. They love their evil works. They don't want to change. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. They don't want to admit that they need to stop doing what it is they're doing. It doesn't feel evil to them. It doesn't feel wicked to them. You may have people in your life that you've tried to, to, to confront with them about their sin. And, and, and they don't turn from it because ultimately they don't see it as evil. They don't see it as wicked. They don't see it as something that needs to stop. They want to stay in the darkness because they love their deeds. The difference with truth responders, those who believe, they are willing to leave it behind and be exposed. Now, understand this. It's not that there are two groups of people those who are in the darkness with sinful deeds and those who are in darkness without them and those without them that are willing to come into the light. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying everybody's in darkness and some hang on to their evil deeds and won't, won't let go of them, don't want to come into the light, and others come running to the light. They come ready to be exposed. They want to surrender these things. They want to experience forgiveness of these things. Those who don't have saving faith choose to stay in darkness because of those desires for sin. But saving faith leads to a decreasing desire to sin, a desire to give it up and to come into the light. Number two, saving faith leads to increasing desires for God's glory. Increasing desires for God's glory. Because get this too, those of us who believe in Jesus, we don't come into the light to show off our good works. It's not that some people stay back into the darkness because they don't have any good works and they just really like their evil works, but there's this small contingent of people over here who come into the light so they can show off their good works. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says instead they come into the light so that their works can now be carried out by God. There's an increasing desire for God's glory. We glory in Christ for the work he has done in us and through us. Ultimately, Jesus is telling us here that our response to the light will determine our eternal destiny. Do we want to hide from the light or do we want to run to it? This isn't the first time we've talked about light and darkness in John. Back in John chapter 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but of God. And John's already talked about the new birth, right? The new birth is experienced by those who come into the light, who release their, their, their clutches on their dark deeds, their evil deeds, give those things up. They come into the light, not with a desire to show off their good works, but with a desire now to have God working in them and through them for God's glory. Our transformed lives need to validate the gospel in such a way that it provides encouragement to those struggling to believe everything. So the application for us, does my life testify that a new birth is possible through the Holy Spirit's power? Does my life testify that a new birth is possible through the Holy Spirit's power? And there's some people that are going to struggle to grasp some of the things that you are teaching, some of the things that you are sharing. As you try to talk about the gospel, you may start to overwhelm somebody with some of your knowledge, and it may become hard for them to understand. One of the clearest things, though, for them will be the life that they observe in you coupled with that message. The life by itself doesn't save. You living a radically changed life that is mute about the gospel doesn't save anybody. Just creates some, some type of questioning. You know, why is this person the way that he is? It's the truth and the life that can lead to salvation. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, we've, we've told you some things and we've shown you some things. You're, you're inexcusable for not believing right now. Most of us in this room know the gospel know it enough to be able to communicate it to others. We have to also make sure that our lives are lining up next to what we proclaim salvation looks like so that we are verifying it to somebody who's, who's struggling to believe. I hear what you're saying. I just, I just don't know if I believe it or not yet. That, that we want to be the type of people who can say, hey, look at my life, and if you need others, I can bring a hundred more to you who have been radically changed by this gospel radically changed. And it doesn't have to be that you've had such a dark past that is now replaced by such a a cleaned up life. Just a life that looks different from everybody else around you. And it ought to. No matter what type of past you were saved out of, your current, present life, it ought to look way different than people who aren't true followers of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we come to you this morning and we praise you and thank you. Uh, that you have looked down upon us, people who have been bitten by sin, who are destined for fire, who are desperately in need of a remedy. And despite your justice and holiness, you did not fail to be loving towards your creation. And you sent the absolute perfect remedy for what we needed. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus as the greatest demonstration of love that we will ever experience. God, help us to realize that what you have done outweighs far anything that any other human could ever do to show love towards us, to show appreciation and value towards us. Your act alone outweighs every other act of love that we've ever heard about. 
God, I pray that you would protect us from ever questioning and wondering whether you love us as your children. God, help us not to have an approach of, what are you going to do for us next? God, help us to cling to the truth of what you've done in the past for us. Help it to resonate with us that we were, we were in the darkness. We were holding our evil deeds. We were perishing and condemned. We were the worst of the worst, and you looked into our hearts, and you shone light where there was no light, and you drew us out of the darkness. God, help us to celebrate that. And Father, help us to yield to you in belief in a way that we desire our lives to be changed and we are submissive to you in working out our salvation so that our lives can be changed. So that as we interact with people in our family, in our workplace, in our hobbies, in our neighborhoods, that they see, they see a life that's different. Help them to hear the truth of the gospel and to see it verified in our own life so that people come to know you. We thank you for the truths that we've, we've seen this morning. God, I pray that as we leave today that we would continue to reflect upon them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.